Genesis chapter 22. We'll actually begin reading in verse 20 where we left off. And I'm only going to read 22 through 24 now. And then we'll come back and read all of chapter 23 when we get to the relevant point, really our second point, which will be dealing with the whole of chapter 23. So look with me at Genesis 22, 20 through 24. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jipla, or Jid, sorry, Jidla, Laf, <laughs> and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Makah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that he blesses it to our hearing. Father, we pray that as we consider this genealogy of Abraham's brother Nahor, and as we consider the death and burial of Sarah that follows, we pray that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord, that you would give us understanding by your spirit in all things, that we would walk with Christ, that we would learn well from the example of Abraham and Sarah that we see here, trusting in the promise of the Christ, looking forward to heaven, to the city whose architect and builder is God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not be aware of this. I will address it a bit more in two weeks on September the 10th uh, when we have our commissioning service for Josh and Bree. We we do encourage you to try to do everything you can to be here as we commission them to the nations. Um, but there's something that I'll address with regard to this a bit more then. But I'll just give you a little bit of a of an insight now. When a gospel minister in the Reformed churches uh, takes his ministerial vows, that means when, when we're ordained, the ordination of a minister, he's been trained, he's been examined, hands are laid on him, and he's prayed for, and he takes vows. When he takes those vows, those ministerial vows, his vows that he's taking are for life. In other words, he understands that he's being set apart Not for a short-term job, not for a career opportunity, but that he's been called by God to offer himself for life to Christ's church. He sees his life as belonging to the Lord and thus being offered to the church wherein he serves. And we take that quite seriously. For me, I'm here for life. Now, there, there is a caveat to that. If the Lord via our elders says, no, you're not, we've had about enough of you, then, then I'm no longer here for life. You understand how that goes? But it's not me having the freedom, understand this, I don't have the freedom to go out searching for other pastoral gigs other places. 
I've taken vows. So when other churches contact me and say we'd be interested in calling you to ministry, and they do, um, if I think it's a serious request at all, goes to the elders. And the elders decide. I don't decide that. I'm here for life. Now, let me tell you this. That might sound like, well, that sounds onerous and oppressive. It's not at all. I freely have offered myself to the Lord, and he has called me to this church, and as long as the church wants me, I'm here. But I want to say this. It's also not hard for me because staying in Bakersfield is an easy ask for me. What you might not know about me is I've been in Bakersfield my whole life, save a few short exceptions like college, my family has been here for generations, literally since the late 1800s. You can find some of my family members in the school picture in the Little Red Schoolhouse in Pioneer Village. That's how long we've been here. And I, I feel like I'm Bakersfield and Bakersfield is me. If you're a Bakersfield person, you might understand that. You're like critical of yourself and your city, right, in, in, in that sense. And you still don't want to leave. As much criticism as you have for your city, which is ample criticism that you tell everybody you meet as you apologize for the town, you also love it and don't want to ever leave. And you sort of feel like, I'm going to criticize it so you all don't move here because we'd like it to not get any larger than it presently is. Look, I want to die and be buried here. I want my family to be here for generations. But let me tell you something you may, may not know about me. That part is easy in the ministerial calling for me. My fear is not remaining long-term at Sovereign Grace in Bakersfield. That's easy in my mind. My fear is ever being called by the Lord via our elders to leave Bakersfield. I struggle to believe that heaven is my home. My heart is so often set here that I do not properly appreciate that the Christian life, this side of heaven, is always the life of a sojourner. Always. I want to lay down roots this side of heaven. I don't want to be a sojourner this side of heaven. Even with my love for, California, for Bakersfield, as California descends into the pit, I actually sort of start thinking to myself, what would it like, be like to be in a freer and more prosperous state to go lay down roots for myself and my kids and my grandkids and generations to come? That's what I start thinking about. I'm sure some of you start thinking about that as well. But friends, the Lord calls us to die in faith. I'm going to talk about what that is. To live and die in the faith that this world is not our home. We see that faith in the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah died in faith with their eyes firmly fixed on heaven. They were looking forward to the city of God. They were looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. They knew they were sojourners this side of the new heavens and new earth. They knew that. And we can see that in that they left their homeland Haran, and followed the call of the Lord to a foreign land. And we need to learn from them. For 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, they're not only a type, Abraham's not only a type in some sense of the Christ to come, he's also an example for us. As is Sarah. 
They're examples for us. So this morning, here's what we're going to look at. First, we're going to consider a quick summary of Abraham's story, Abraham's story to this point. Second, we're going to look at the death and burial of Sarah. So the first point is really going to cover verse 20, and especially those first words, now after these things, after what things, right? The second point is going to look at chapter 23, the death and burial of Sarah. And then I have two lessons for Christian sojourners, which by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. So I have two lessons for Christian sojourners, Christian exiles. So let's look first at a quick summary of Abraham's story till now. Look at Genesis 22 and verse 20. Notice how it starts. Now after these things... It was told to Abraham. After these things. After what things? What are these things? The problem with leaving off in late May as we start a psalm series and then picking up here is you've forgotten what these things are when we left off. So what are these things? In the immediate context, in the most immediate context, these things are a reference to the Lord, to the Lord's test of Abraham. If you remember, the Lord tested Abraham and said, you will go up on Mount Moriah and you will offer Isaac, your son, your beloved son. You'll offer him there. And as Abraham goes with Isaac, now Isaac's old enough to carry the wood and walk up there. As Abraham and Isaac go up to Mount Moriah for the offering of Isaac as a sacrifice upon Mount Moriah, the Lord intervenes via an angel and provides a goat, which they sacrifice in his place. And then we hear this promise given to Abraham. So look at Genesis 22 and verse 17. Genesis 22 and verse 17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, I want you to notice this. In Genesis 12, when the Lord first calls Abraham to go to the land, he says, I will bless you. And now we're picking up that blessing from Genesis 12 again. I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring. He not only promised to bless him in Genesis 12, he promised him offspring. And then in Genesis 15, he told him his offspring would be like the stars of the heavens. You remember that? Go out and look at the stars, Abraham. So will your offspring be. And now we're getting that picked up again here. In other words, we're getting all those Abrahamic promises in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 really tied together in this promise with regard to Isaac and the offspring that shall come from him. So look there. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, he will conquer his enemies. He will rule over them. When you went to the gate, you went to the gate of the city because the elders sat there. You guys know that? The elders sat at the gate of the city and they offered judgments on cases. So this man's going to, if you will, rule over and judge all matters, even over his enemies. Now look what it goes on to say. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth Be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Again, Genesis 12. In you I will bless all the families of the earth. That gets picked up again in Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. Herein we have the promise 
of the coming son of Abraham. Now you'll say, isn't it Isaac? Well, Isaac is the, if you will, the son of Abraham whom he loved, through whom this promise will proceed. But he isn't ultimately the seed we're talking about. Here we have the promise of the coming son of Abraham who will bless his people from every nation and will conquer all his enemies. This seed of Abraham um, will come not only through him, but through his son Isaac. And that draws us all the way back to the story of Abraham and to God's promise to be God to him and to his children after him. Abraham left his homeland of Haran. Now, I don't, so I don't confuse you. Abraham has a brother named Haran, and the land he lived in is Haran. Just so I don't confuse you, you remember that. Both his brother, one of his brothers named Haran, and the land he lived in was Haran. He's originally from Ur of the Chaldees. He settled in Haran. But he left his homeland of Haran at the calling of the Lord and upon the covenant that the Lord made with him. The Lord promised to give Abraham land and offspring. And he promised that he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Abraham would be the father of many nations. And that's especially found here in that his offspring will be the blessing to all nations. So we're really swinging now after all these things. We're really swinging through Genesis 12 through 22. The whole story of Abraham as it's summed up in this final promise to him after the offering of Isaac at Mount Moriah and the substitution of this goat that the Lord gave them. But Genesis 12 through 22 doesn't stand alone in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 through 22 is the answer to the problem of Genesis 3 through 11. If you remember, God created man holy and upright. Man rebelled and walked into sin. God had created us in all things good. We rebelled and occurred from him wrath, sin and death. Then the Lord promised he would send a seed of the woman to save his people and crush his enemies. That seed of the woman would be the second Adam. He would keep the law where Adam failed to, both in its precept, and then he would keep the law in its penalty. In other words, he would take the wrath of God due to us for our sin in our place. This seed of the woman This second Adam is someone we're looking for in Genesis. We're looking for him. We're looking for him. We start looking for this man to come. And we began to, we begin, sorry, to receive more clarity regarding who he is with the story of Abraham. He will not only come from humanity, in other words, be the seed of the woman, but he will come specifically from Abraham's family, the nation of Israel. When you get to the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, you're going to learn not only to come from humanity and from the nation of Israel, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. It starts to narrow this promise of the one who's to come. So we have learned that he's coming through Abraham and now Isaac. Now notice what it says in Genesis 22, 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother, Nahor. Okay, and you're going to get a genealogy. What's told to him? We're getting the genealogy of his brother, Nahor, of his family. You're like, why are they so obsessed with genealogies? Remember, you're looking for a particular son who will save the world. And Genesis is arranged around these genealogies 
pointing you to him. We read genealogies and we think, so dull. They read genealogies and they're looking for the messianic son to save them. And they're watching that play out. Now, if you remember the genealogies, um, Nahor is one of three brothers, Abraham, Haran, and Nahor. They are the three sons of Terah. Terah's three sons, Abraham, Haran, and Nahor. You learn Abraham's genealogy in Genesis 12 through 22, and you will through Isaac and then Jacob. You learn Haran's through the story of Lot. Remember the story of Lot? That's Haran's son. Haran dies, and Abraham takes Lot into his own household. So you learn his story there. But you have not heard the genealogy of Nahor, the third brother. So now here you get it. Genesis is driving you by genealogies to the promised Messiah. Now, why does Nahor's genealogy matter? One, because he's a son of Terah, of whom Abraham is also a son. But also because of who that genealogy will point you to, which we'll look at in a second. But I want you to consider how this moves. Adam had three sons. Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain kills Abel. So Cain can't be the Messiah, nor can Abel. You see how that works? Then Seth is born. The line of Seth is driving us forward to the Christ. Who comes from Seth's line as you go through the genealogy is Noah. And Noah has three sons. Adam had three sons. Now Noah has three sons. Who are his three sons? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham can't be the Messiah. He's the one who exposes his father's shame. And Abraham promises that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Shem. Shem's line drives us forward to Terah, one of his sons. And Terah has three sons, Abraham, Haran, and Nahor. Are you guys seeing how this works? And you're being driven forward. Now, we receive Nahor's line. Why? Because of one key figure. Look at, look at verse 21. Bethuel fathered who? Rebecca. You're going to see 12 sons actually here in... In Nahor's line, he has 12 sons, which gives you some mimic of what's going to happen with um, Jacob's 12 sons. Um, but you have 12 here. Now, what's interesting is, though, this is the only female mentioned in this genealogy. Only one. But she's an incredibly important one, isn't she? And what Moses is doing is he's giving you Nahor's genealogy, focused in on Rebekah, because you're about to see the death and burial of Sarah. And when Sarah dies and is buried, we've basically come to the end of Abraham's story. And in Genesis chapter 24, we're going to pick up the story of Isaac and Rebekah. The Abraham and Sarah story comes to an end. We pick up the story of Isaac and Rebekah. So you're being transitioned to the wife of Isaac. You're being moved by Moses, if you will, to the next patriarch and matriarch of the family. You're being brought back to Abraham's story with the death of Sarah and being pointed forward to the next chapter in Abraham's story with Rebekah, Isaac's wife. So, let's move forward with the death of Sarah so we can see how this story begins to wrap up. This is really our second point, the death and burial of Sarah. Look at Genesis 23 and verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. You understand what that means. She's honored by the Lord and that she's dying in a good old age. 
right? It's God's blessing. Genesis 15, 15 says to Abraham, you'll die in a good old age. So is Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Not Haran, the homeland. Canaan, the land they've been sent to. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, the Hittites are the people who rule in that land at the time, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God or a mighty prince, depending on how it's translated, a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. I want you to notice this story. It's interesting. Abraham weeps and mourns over the death of his wife, Sarah. That is what we would expect. Um, and Sarah is honored in their death at a good old age. But Abraham then goes on to negotiate to buy land in Canaan for her burial. Now remember, Abraham and Sarah are from Ur the Chaldees, having settled in the land of Haran. They lived in Haran until they were, until Abraham was 75 years old. Now I want you to imagine the Lord coming and calling you to a new land at 75 years old. I'm 50. It's hard to imagine right now at 50 years old, moving away from all the people I know and all the things I know. That's hard enough. 75. That's their homeland. 
Their families live there. Their families are buried there in Haran. That's where the tomb of the tombs of their ancestors are found. That's no small fact. Burial is permanent. Ancient people cherish their burial grounds. You didn't really want to move too far away from the family burial grounds. That's where the family is. That's home. The fact that he does not, that Abraham does not return Sarah to their ancestral home in Haran for burial with the rest of the family is a major statement regarding Abraham's belief in the Lord's promises. It's not just a small thing. Well, she's dead here. What difference does it matter where we toss the body? Dig a hole and throw it in. This is a major thing, especially for a people of the ancient Near East. The family burial grounds are in Haran. That's where we go. I'm going to buy land in Canaan and bury her here instead. The promised land that God told us about. Now, Abraham doesn't technically own land in Canaan yet, and God had promised it to him, and now we're seeing the first, if you will, purchase of land by Abraham in Canaan. What's interesting about the story is that he says, let me bury my dead here in this foreign land among foreigners, not home where our ancestors are, and they say, okay, go ahead and bury her in one of our tombs. And he bows down before them respectfully and says, Basically, I know I'm a stranger and sojourner in this land, and I'm very thankful for your offer to bury her in one of your tombs. That's kind of you. That's honorable of you. However, I don't want to bury her in one of your tombs. We want to own a tomb of our own, and we want to own all the land associated with that tomb. So they say, he says, how about Ephron? I'd like to ask him. I'd like to ask Ephron for that piece of land And Machpelah, I'd like that piece of land where that tomb is. I want to bury her there and I want to own all the land around it. Ephron says, sure, you can have it. I'll give it to you as a donation. And Abraham says, that's very honorable, bows down again. That's very respectful and kind of you. However, I don't want you to give it to me. I want to buy it from you. And Ephron's like, okay, 400 shekels of silver should do it. And Abraham says, all right, I'll count out the 400 shekels of silver. Here you are. And you get all these details that at the gate of the city, they make this exchange in front of the presence of all people. And you get all the details. He owned this piece of land and he owned all the trees in it. You guys heard the emphasis there? And it was his and it was made good in front of the whole city. All the elders of the city, if you will, see it. And they now know it belongs to Abraham. Why is Abraham at pains to buy the land? Because God has promised him his possession in Canaan. And he knows that to just use one of their tombs or to be given their land is going to be like a, um, uh, well, you know, you don't really own it. It's not really yours. He wants to say, no, this, this is really owned by me. It's really ours. This is our burial place in the land God has sent us to. Now, you want to know how important that is? It's emphasized in Genesis. Go to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. And look at verse 29. 
Then he commanded them, Jacob had blessed his family. So this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is now Jacob. He blesses his sons. Verse 29, then he commanded them and said to them, so Jacob to his sons, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people in this tomb that's being purchased right now. Where Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah, the father and mother of Jacob, and Jacob and Leah, the father and mother of Judah, were buried. And it's driving us right down the family line to the Messiah. But notice the importance of the whole patriarchal family being buried here. It's not a small matter in Genesis. It tells you where the faith of these people lied. They believed God's promise of a land for them. Ultimately, they were believing. Ultimately, that's what I drive at. They were believing in the new heavens and new earth that this land pointed them to. And that leads us to the third point, two lessons for sojourners. Two lessons for sojourners. In other words, here comes the application for you. Like Abraham and Sarah, who are sojourners and foreigners in the land, so are we. So are we. Here's the first lesson. As sojourners, we should live in a manner that declares the Lord with our mouths and honors him with our lives. If you want to, like, use two L's, your lips and your lives. How about that? But declares the Lord with our mouths and honors him with our lives. Abraham, notice Abraham, is respectful and kind to his neighbors. These are his pagan neighbors who don't always make life easy for Abraham. But Abraham is respectful and kind to his neighbors, ensuring that his land is secured by legal and just means. There's a mutual respect between Abraham and the Hittites. They see him, the Hittites see Abraham, as a king, a prince of some kind. Probably a mighty prince militarily because he had been known to conquer the peoples who took him on. They did not just see him as a stranger or a sojourner of little repute. They saw him as a very honorable and respectable man. He treats his neighbors kindly and respectfully too. He wants to live respectfully among the Gentiles as one who glorifies the God of his salvation. He understands he's set apart to be a blessing to the nations. Look look at 1 Peter 2. Russell, I think, read from that this morning, right? You read from that and Hebrews 11, right, Russ? Yep, that's what I thought. Okay, Hebrews 2, excuse me, 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, look there, First Peter, so you're going to the New Testament, almost to the end of the New Testament. If you're at First, Second, Third John, you've gone too far. If you're at Hebrews, you've not gone far enough. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 
But you, this is talking to believers, believers in Christ, that's you, it's you. You're a part of the you here, you understand? You're not the original you that he's talking to, but you are caught up here. This is true of you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All that language is coming out of Exodus 19 and then Isaiah speaking about Israel. But now you're being called that. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's picking up on Hosea here. But the point is that we, sovereign grace, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once we were not his people, and now we are his people. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That requires we open our mouths about Jesus. As sojourners, we open our mouths about Jesus. We pray for opportunities. Lord, give me opportunities that I might be able to speak to somebody who doesn't know your son about you, about Christ. Pray for the opportunities and then tell people. Tell people. I know it's awkward and it's difficult to be sort of cast aside, ridiculed, looked at strangely for believing what you believe. But you're only worried about that if this is your home. You need to gather as many friends with the world here if your hopes are set on the world here. But if your hopes are set on heaven, then if the people of the world cast you aside, they do. But you open your mouth about Jesus. You proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are sojourners and exiles from this world. Look, look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. He goes on. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's the unbelievers, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the interesting thing. Um, we're to live as citizens of heaven with godly and honorable conduct. That doesn't mean that the world will always speak well of you. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, so if they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you, the world will speak against you. Just will happen. They will dishonor your name. They will revile you. Speak all kinds of evil against you falsely. And what does he say? Live honorable lives among them. Walk in godliness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war on your soul. And, and they're going to one day see your good deeds. They'll see them. It'll be made obvious to all. We're to live as citizens with godly and honorable conduct. We're not just to speak beautiful truth. We're to live beautiful lives. We walk in good works. We live righteously, speaking to 
bless even those who curse us, seeking to bless even those who curse us. You ever thought about that? Paul says that in Romans 12. When others bless you, I mean, excuse me, when others curse you, bless them in return and do not curse. How many of us are good at that? When others curse you, how many of you think, man, it's time for blessing? I don't think that's probably the first thing that comes into our heart. But understand, you cursed the Lord, and he graciously chose to bless you in his son. And so now you treat others in the same way. We do the same. It's hard, but it honors the Lord. So hard, but it honors the Lord. Because you're not living for this present life and getting what you want in this present life. You're living for the new heavens and new earth. Second lesson, as sojourners, we should live and die in faith. So as sojourners, we should speak and act in a way that honors the Lord. As sojourners, we should live and die in faith. Abraham and Sarah forsook their lives and security for the privilege of dying in faith. For the privilege of dying in faith. One question we have to ask here. Um, there's a question we have to ask given that Abraham and Sarah are dead. Right? If you're looking forward to inherit a land, because some of this ought to throw us, they're looking forward to inherit the land of Canaan. So they're keen to buy a burial place there. If you're looking forward to inheriting a land, then you need to be alive to enjoy the inheritance, don't you? Like if I, in my will, give everything to my children and we all die together, what good did it do them that, they, that dead people inherited stuff from me? Doesn't seem like it does them any good. So why are they so keen to buy a burial place as their inheritance in the land? What good is an inheritance if you're dead? You understand the problem here? That's why the end of Genesis seems so peculiar to us. Look at how the book of Genesis ends. You can keep your hand here in the New Testament. We'll look at Hebrews 11 in a minute. But, but look over at Genesis 50. Genesis 50. And notice the end of it. Because it ought to seem peculiar to you. If you remember... Jacob's family ends up in Egypt due to a famine. And Jacob's son Joseph rises up to a level of prominence in Egypt. And Joseph comes to the end of his life. Look at verse 24 of Genesis 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And when's God going to visit them and bring them into the land? In the book of Exodus. Call this the Exodus. As the Lord comes via Moses and brings them to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now listen. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being... 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What a weird ending to the book of Genesis. Joseph died and he was put in a coffin in Egypt and he said, hey, when the Lord comes and leads you in the Exodus out of here, take my bones with you. Now you're going to pick that up in the rest of the Pentateuch. He actually is taken 
to the promised land and buried there. Note where Joseph insists he's buried. What difference does it make if you're buried in that land? If you're already dead and you can't enjoy that land. John Calvin gets an answer. Here's what he says. While they themselves were silent. You know they're silent because they're dead? You understand that? That's how that works. Dead people don't talk. If you hear any talking to you, you've got issues. We can recommend you to somebody. But while they themselves were silent, the grave cried aloud that death formed no obstacle to their entering on the possession of the land. Now, Calvin's getting at two realities when he says that. Death formed no obstacle to their entering in on the possession of the land. He's getting at two realities that these patriarchs are trusting in. First, they're trusting in eternal life with the Lord. These patriarchs are trusting in eternal life with the Lord. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, believed they would have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. He makes this comment. And verse 29, he says this. But Jesus answered them, You were wrong because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, he's being asked about the resurrection. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels don't marry, they don't reproduce, and neither do people in heaven. Now notice what he says. For in the resurrection, they don't, right? He goes on, verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is a strange statement. They don't believe in the resurrection. At least Sadducees don't. The joke is, that's why they're sad, you see, right? Um, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus is saying, listen, let me tell you, it's not like this in the resurrection. It's like this. And we know there's a resurrection because God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. You say, what? What does that mean? Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though these patriarchs died, yet they live. That's what Jesus is saying to you. They're alive. And they all believe that would be true. They all believe they would have eternal life. And you might think, well, they might, they might have eternal life, But where do you find the claim that they knew that there was life beyond the grave? And thus buying the grave is that, if you will, that tomb is inheriting the land. Where do you find that, that they knew there was life beyond the grave? A new heavens and new earth. Where do you find that claim? I get it. They had eternal life because they believed in the Lord and his promise of the coming Messiah. So they had eternal life. But how do you know they knew that? It's hinted at in their being buried in that tomb there, but there's more. It's a second reality they believed and why burial in the promised land mattered to them. They were looking forward to their heavenly home when they even went into the land of Canaan. 
they saw Canaan as a picture of their heavenly home. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. That's Canaan. As in a foreign land. Remember, he's a stranger or sojourner, foreigner in that land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise for, listen, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, that's because Abraham was a hundred years old. If you're near a hundred, there you go. That's the Bible's judgment. As good as dead. Okay? So keep going. By one man, him as good as dead, what happens? We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith. Do you guys hear that? You ever think about living in faith, but you ever thought about dying in faith? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. The Messiah hadn't come. They hadn't gathered the whole land, etc. But having seen them and greeted them from afar... And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Haran, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, the promised land was a type of their heavenly home, which they presently enjoy. It was a type of the new heavens and new earth, which will, which we will all enjoy at the return of Christ. But that leaves me with two questions to sort of conclude. How do you receive that internal, that eternal inheritance? How do you receive it? Well, listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. Not will have eternal life. Has it already. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, has passed from death to life. That's how you die in faith. You die in faith as one looking to Christ, knowing that you have eternal life. As those who have this inheritance, how do you live now? You keep your eyes firmly focused on Christ and follow after him, knowing that heaven is your home. Listen to the exchange between Jesus and Peter. If you remember... Jesus was teaching, and many of his followers realized that following him was a hard road, and his teachings were hard teachings, and he questions Peter. Listen to the exchange. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's many of Jesus' followers. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, Sovereign Grace, it's not an easy road to walk the road, that narrow road to heaven. It is filled with trials and temptations 
adversaries and destructions, and distractions, sorry, problems and pitfalls. But it is only as we walk this road that we find Christ. He is the way. And to whom else shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. So let us walk in faith with our eyes firmly set upon Christ in heaven. And let us die in faith. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would trust in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the second Adam who kept the law in our place. Not only in its commands, fulfilling all of it, but in its penalty, taking the wrath due to us upon himself. And may we look to him and live for him and honor him. May we honor him with our lips and may we do so with our lives. May you cause us to walk as strangers and sojourners in this world. Not building up treasure here. Not trying to find crowds of those who love us here but seeking to build up our treasure in heaven, seeking to honor your name above all, and to hear the honor come from you, well done, good and faithful servant. May we walk with Christ with our eyes ever set on our heavenly home. In Jesus' name, amen.